Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. We are in the midst of a series called Who is Jesus? We are studying the gospel of John and if you're using one of the Bibles in the pews, that's page 890. And let me um, encourage you, pick up one of these. You'll see them sitting around. There's some in the, both sides of the church as you leave. Um, these are for you to give out. We have hundreds of them. So they're invitations to come to church during this series. And so you can give them to friends, put them in public places where people can pick them up. We have business card size where you can put in a purse or wallet, um, and then larger ones that you can put out on just places where they would be displayed. But it's just a great way to invite people to our church. Well, in these first 11 chapters of John, we're looking at seven signs of the Savior, seven miracles that Jesus performs, which really point to who He is. And we've come today to... The third sign, which is found in the fifth chapter of John, and we're going to talk about joining God in his work. John chapter 5, and let's look together at the first 17 verses of that chapter. Follow along with me as I read. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work. And you desire to be at work in our lives this very day. And we thank you for the incredible privilege that we have of joining you in your work, of being a part of what you are doing in our world. And so, Father, open our eyes to this reality today. Lord, through the Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now compellingly in a life-changing way And so, Lord, we pray that you would rid us of any distraction in these moments, that we might be focused on you, on your word, and that our minds and hearts would be open to receive from you right now. Speak to us, we pray, 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of us have pet peeves when it comes to the road, just things that really kind of grate on our nerves when we're driving, you know what I'm talking about. And my pet peeve on the road, without a doubt, is bad signage. I mean, I'm trying to obey everything they're telling me to do, you know, what the signs are telling me to do, but then you do it, and sometimes it turns out, well, the signs were just a little bit confusing. Well, there are seven signs in the beginning of John's Gospel, in the first 11 chapters. None of them are confusing. All of them give us the true path to abundant life and eternal life and tell us the true identity of Jesus. Today we're looking at the third of these signs in chapter 5. And it begins with a merciful healing. Let's just kind of walk through the text and see what's happening here. It says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So last time, as we looked at the second sign, which was in the village of Cana, that was in the north, in, up in Galilee, the northern part of the Israel. And now, once again, Jesus has gone south to Jerusalem. You would think that John would say he'd gone down to Jerusalem, but if you've ever visited Israel, you know that when you visit Jerusalem, which way do you go? You go up in elevation. So even though Jerusalem is to the south of Galilee, when people went there, they would say, you're going up to Jerusalem because you're going up in elevation into the city. It's surrounded by mountains and hills. And so Jesus, once again, is in Jerusalem now. And it says in verse 2 that there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Extensive excavation has been done of this pool. If you visit Jerusalem today, you can see this very clearly. In fact, you can even see the remains of the columns. So there were columns on all four sides, one row of columns going through the middle. And the name of the pool was Bethesda, which means house of mercy. House of mercy. And that was appropriate because of who was There, verse 3 tells us, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so these disabled people would lie among the columns and there was a a shelter above them. So they they would lie there in the shelter among the columns. And they had this superstition that an angel of God would come and he would stir up the waters of the pool. And if you could be the first one into the water, then you could be healed. Well, it was just pure superstition, but that's what they believed. Actually, people that were really concerned with ritual purity and more well-to-do people did not frequent these pools because these people frequented the pools. But that didn't stop Jesus from going there. Jesus knew these people were there. They were in need. And so Jesus goes to the pool on this day. And we see in verse 5 that one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, the Greek word that's translated as invalid here in English is a general term for disabled people. So it doesn't tell us what his disability is here in verse in this verse, but we know that he couldn't walk. That's obvious from what happens later on. He's paralyzed. He's unable to walk for some reason. And by telling us that he had been in this condition for 38 years, John is just underscoring the, just the, the, the utter hopelessness, seeming hopelessness of this situation. I mean, the average life expectancy for a man in this culture was just over 40 So this man's been in this condition for about as long as most men even lived. And it just sort of underscores, this was just like a hopeless type 
of situation. But then Jesus shows up. Verse 6 says that Jesus saw him lying there. When we read the Gospels, you see this again and again. Jesus sees people. I mean, he really sees people. It's like Jesus has this antenna of compassion that is just able to see people who were in great need. And it says here that Jesus knew he had already been there a long time. How did Jesus know this? Because Jesus is God. <laughs> and so Jesus knows that this man has been here for, for decades. And so then Jesus asks them what would seem to be an odd question to ask somebody who's been in this condition for almost four decades. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? Well, it seems like an odd question, but it's really not. A couple of reasons. First of all, when you read the Gospels, you see that when Jesus interacts with people, he'll often ask them questions. And that was to draw them out, to get them to participate in what was going on, to focus their minds. So Jesus often asks people to, questions to draw them out. That's not uncommon. But there's another reason why Jesus asks this question. And that is, when someone has been in this condition for almost four decades, it has become their way of life. And in some ways, maybe normal life could be even more challenging. And so before Jesus does anything, he asks the question, do you want to be healed? I would say to you today that if you're dealing with something in your life, and especially if it's a deeply ingrained pattern of sin or some sort of addiction, the first question that I would ask you today is, do you really want to get well? Do you want to be healed? Because that comes first. You've got to want it before anything else. And so Jesus begins by asking this question. Well, the man responds in, uh, in, verse, in verse 7 by saying, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going down, another steps down before me. So clearly this man is bought into this superstition that the first one into the pool is going to be healed. It was just all nonsense. And in verse 8, Jesus cuts right through the nonsense. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now we saw this last week, right, with the second sign. All it takes is a word from Jesus. Just a word. Jesus says the word, done. I mean, Jesus speaks the word, it's done. There's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus says, peace, be still. It's calm. Someone's demon-possessed, Jesus says, out, they're gone. God says, let there be light, and there is light. Okay, God speaks, it's done. Which ought to speak to us, again, about the importance of prayer. How must it grieve the heart of our Father when we face things in life that we ought to be praying about, but we're doing everything but praying? I mean, we're, we're, we're trying to figure it out and deal with it on our own in every way that we know how. We're doing everything but praying. Friends, we should go to God first. God is the one who can speak a word into the situation, and it's done. He can do more in five minutes than what we can do in five years or 50 years or 500. Let's go to God first. Pray first before anything. God is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, and He's willing and able to answer our prayers. Now, interestingly, the word that Jesus uses here, the word that's, that's get up, is the word of the New Testament that's often used for resurrection. One day, when Christ returns, he's going to say to us, get up. 
And this healing is like a foretaste. The, the, this man who's been lame is made whole. And that's really like a foretaste of what's going to happen at the resurrection when Christ comes again and, and his people are raised and we're going to get bodies that are much better than what this man got because this was a temporary healing, as glorious as it was. One day we're going to, God, Jesus is going to say, arise, get up, and we're going to get up with new and glorious and permanent resurrection bodies. It's going to be wonderful. This is just a little hint, a little foretaste of that glorious day. And Jesus says, get up. So, Notice the totality of the healing here. It's immediate and it's total. Verse 9. And at once the man was healed. It was immediate. And it was total. He took up his bed and walked. I mean, bear in mind, the, the muscles in this man's legs would have atrophied decades before. But the, the, the tissues, the sinews, the muscles, everything has been put back together. He takes up his bed and walks as if nothing has ever happened. Well, I mean, who would not be rejoicing at something like this? Well, some of the religious people in that culture, for one. We not only see here a, a merciful healing, but we see a merciless legalism. We see it in verses 9 and 10. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, and when John talks about the Jews in his gospel, he's talking about religious Jews, okay, the scribes and Pharisees, basically. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is a Sabbath, not lawful for you to take up your bed. I mean, how crazy is this? I mean, here's this amazing thing that's happened, this beautiful thing that's happened, this man who's been in this condition for almost 40 years has been made whole. I mean, you know, and these guys can't see the forest for the trees because they are so stuck on their man-made rules and regulations and traditions. And there was actually nothing in the Old Testament that would have forbidden him from taking up his bed and walking. But they had sort of, they had rules on top of rules that they had attached to the Bible, their own rabbinic traditions and writings and so forth. And uh, one of them uh, would, for, uh, it, 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 it forbade people to, uh, to take up a, an empty bed and walk. Ironically, if the man had still been paralyzed, they could have taken up the bed and carried him. I mean, it's just you know, crazy. It's like some kind of government you know, rule or red tape or regulation or something, which in a way is, 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 is what it was. But you know, this is what legalism does. When we start attaching things to the Bible that aren't there um, and attaching, putting our own man-made rules and traditions on a par with Scripture, this is exactly what happens, is that What's really important gets buried. It gets lost. I mean, something beautiful has happened here, and they're too blind to see it because they're so stuck on all their man-made rules and traditions. And that's really what legalism does. Legalism is when we add things to the Bible. Liberalism is when we take things away from the Bible. We don't want to do either one. They're both ditches we don't want to fall into. We don't want to add things to the Bible. We don't want to subtract things from the Bible. We just want to be relentlessly biblical. But when we get into legalism, uh, then what's really important can get buried. It can get lost, and we can't see the forest for the trees. Not only that, but we tend to, we tend to focus on surface things instead of the deeper things that we ought to be concerned with. See, it's much easier for us just to have a little list of rules. 
that we can obey, a little list of external rules, and we say, check, 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 check. Okay, I'm checking off all the blocks. I'm living a holy life. When in reality, there are deeper things that aren't being dealt with. And I'm talking about things like a lack of love, things like anger, things like lust, things like fear and being controlling and insecurity and worry and things, things that, that we really need to be dealing with that we're not dealing with because we think, okay, if, as long as I've checked off my little list of externals, I'm doing okay. I'm living a holy life. And so legalism tends to really trivialize what true holiness is all about. That's what's, that's what's happening here. So uh, he answered them. They, these guys, the, the, leader, the religious leaders confront this man and he answers them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. Evidently this was more of a quiet type of miracle. It, it just happens, Jesus quietly goes up and he engages this guy and there's not a lot of conversation, and he doesn't even do it in response to faith. When Jesus heals people, lots of times it's done in response to their faith, but not always. Sometimes, just in compassion, Jesus would, would heal people in the hopes that it would spark faith. And that seems to be the case here, because now Jesus is going to find him, and he's going to engage him on a deeper level, because Jesus knows that this man needs a deeper healing than physical healing. And so verse 14 tells us that afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. Now, the temple complex in Jerusalem is just to the south of the pool of Bethesda. They're, they're almost adjacent to one another. So he hasn't, he hasn't gone far. And he's not necessarily in the temple to worship. The temple complex was like a sprawling type of complex. But Jesus finds him there later on, and he says to the man, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Because Jesus knows that even though this physical healing has taken place, there's a deeper healing that needs to take place in this man's life. And Jesus knows that even though he's been healed of his paralysis, that one day this man's going to die. He's going to meet God, and he's not ready to die. He's not ready to meet God, you know, which is the ultimate question that every person has got to answer, because one day we're going to stand before God. We're going to die, or Christ is going to come, um, and again, we're going, to be, we're, going to, we're going to stand before him. On August 6, 1945, Toyoshi Yamaguchi, a Japanese maritime engineer, was in the city of Hiroshima in Japan. He was there on a business trip. At 8.15 that morning, Yamaguchi heard a bomber fly over the city, and suddenly there was a blinding flash of light. He was knocked backward. It was the first atomic bomb. His, his face and arms were burned. He suffered some damage to his hearing and, and temporary blindness, but he survived. And in fact, he was okay the next day 
to travel back to his hometown, 190 miles to the southwest of Hiroshima. And Yamaguchi's hometown was Nagasaki, where three days later, on August 9th, he heard another bomber, another flash of light. This time he was inside a building. The building was actually blown over, but remarkably, he escaped just with only minor bruises. He survived two atomic bombs, survived his wounds from those bombs, survived the delayed effects of radiation through the years, and lived another 65 years. Until in 2010, old age did what two atomic bombs could not do. And Yamaguchi died. It's reality. All of us, whether it's 93, 33, somewhere before or somewhere in between, all of us are going to stand before a holy God. And that's reality. That's reality. And it's something that we've got to come to terms with. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the issue in your life is what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, this past week, they had the election for the Baseball Hall of Fame, and I'm always interested in this as a baseball fan, who gets in, who doesn't get in. And there's always a lot of debate about it. I mean, people compare stats, and they say, well, you know, did this pitcher have a low enough ERA? Did he have enough wins? Was his career long enough to get in for position players? Was his batting average high enough? Did he hit enough home runs, et cetera, et cetera? And they judge all kinds of stats to determine who was worthy of getting in. But the argument is always framed in terms of who deserved to get in, who deserves to get in the Hall of Fame. A lot of times people talk about heaven that way. And the question is, who deserves to go to heaven? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is crystal clear. None of us. (laughs) None of us deserve to go to heaven. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us has measured up to God's standard of perfection. We have not. But the very next verse after that says, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That means that although none of us deserves to go to heaven, all of us can go to heaven. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. We can be justified or made right with God freely by His grace. It's undeserved. It comes to us as a gift. But it's just like the gifts that we exchanged a couple of weeks ago at Christmas time. In order for a gift to become your own, what do you have to do? You have to take it. You have to receive it. It means you have to receive Christ personally. Welcome Him into your life as your Savior and Lord. And rely on what Jesus has done for you through His cross and taking your sins upon Himself on the cross. He took all of your, all of your evil, all of your darkness upon Himself on the cross paid the price, took your death penalty in your place, rose from the dead. You can be forgiven, you can live, you can have abundant life and eternal life, but you've got to rely on what Jesus has done. It's about Him. Trust Him. Receive Him today. The reality of death should speak to those of us who are Christians because knowing that we have one short life to make a difference for Christ is something that we should be acutely aware of every day. 
not in a morbid sense, not in a neurotic sense, but we should be aware. We get one shot at this. And then really it's kind of a brief shot. Even if we live to an old age, it, it goes by so quickly. Life is like a vapor, James says. In his book, Crazy Love, Francis Chan talks about a conversation two guys were having. And there's this one guy who was an on-fire Christian, and he was just sold out to Christ. And he was just deeply immersed in the work of his church and everything. And, and the other guy was saying to him, who was kind of more lukewarm in his faith, this guy was saying to him, hey, look, you're doing too much. You're doing too much in your church and with Christianity. I mean, you're spending too much time on this. You're, you're giving too much money to this and too much of your energy to this and on and on and on. And the Christian who was on fire said to him, I wonder if you'll say that after we're dead. One day it's all going to be crystal clear what's really important. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God says that when, you, when someone knows they're going to die in a fortnight, it has a remarkably clarifying effect on the mind. I mean, we, what if we could live like that all the time, just with knowing that, hey, you know what? We get one shot at this. It's going to go by quickly. Let's make the maximum impact that we can for Christ. Ultimately, that's all that's going to matter. So, what happens here? I mean, this man's got an opportunity. He's got Jesus right in front of him. God's right in front of him. What's he going to do with his opportunity? Well, nothing good, unfortunately. Verse 15, Jesus talks to him, and then what happens in verse 15? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. He responds to the conversation with Jesus and by immediately just going out and telling the authorities on Jesus. You know, we would love to think that every time that we talk to somebody about Christ, that it's going to result in their conversion. That didn't even happen every time Jesus talked to somebody. Okay? So we need to understand that when we share Christ with someone, whatever their response is, we, we should never feel like failures. Let me tell you something. The only failure in witnessing is the failure to witness. The failure to try. We're not, we don't control people's response. We can't convert anybody. But what we are to do is to share the gospel with people. And, and we're not in charge of the results. So don't ever feel like a failure when you share your faith with people. Every time you share your faith with people, you, should, you know you're doing what the Father wants you to do. And you should have a, a good feeling about that. Not everyone's going to immediately trust in in Christ. Um, so there's a third thing that we see here, and that's the fact that God is at work. We see God at work. God's work never ceases. You say, well, didn't God rest on the Sabbath? Well, on the Sabbath, God did rest from his creative work in creating the world, but God has never rested from his work of governing and sustaining the universe. He's always at work, 24-7. And so as Psalm 121 says, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's always vigilant. He's always at work for our good and for his glory. And we can praise him for that. And the amazing thing is that God, God chooses to involve us in his work. 
That's, that's the most amazing part, is that we get to join God in the work that he's doing. God chooses to involve us in the work that he's doing. So um, we see here in verses 16 and 17, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, but Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. And he involves us in his work. Three things about that. First of all, look for where God is working and join him. Look for where God is working and join him. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So when you look at the ministry of Jesus, there was always a responsiveness on his part. Jesus was always looking for the work of the Father, and then he would join the Father in his work. That's a great principle for us as well. Live your life with your eyes wide open. Go through life every day looking for the activity of God, looking for what God is doing around you, for what he's doing in the lives of people, and then join God in the work that he's doing. Second principle here, work in God's Power, not in your own strength. First Peter 4, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. We, we serve in the strength that God supplies. Sometimes I've heard, I've heard God compared to Uncle Sam on one of those old military recruitment posters, you know, where it has Uncle Sam kind of pointing out, as I'm looking for a few good men or women. And sometimes I've heard that God's sort of compared to that. God's looking for a few good men or women. Well, John Piper has a slightly different spin on that that I think is helpful. Piper says the difference between Uncle Sam and Jesus Christ is that Uncle Sam won't enlist you unless you're healthy, and Jesus won't enlist you unless you're sick. You've got to first of all admit right, that you're a sinner, that you need him, that you need a savior. What is God looking for in the world? Assistance? No. The gospel is not a help wanted at. It is a help available at. God is not looking for people to work for him, but people who let him work mightily in and through them. That's a paradigm shift that I think we need to make in our minds. So we need to work in his power. And then third, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Is God sovereign? Is God all-powerful? Then we don't want to belittle him with smallish thinking and smallish dreams and goals let's expect great things from him and attempt great things for him jesus says in john 14 12 truly truly i say to you whoever believes in me will also do the works that i do and greater works than these will he do because i am going to the father because after jesus goes to the father what does he do he sends the holy spirit the holy spirit is poured out at pentecost and when we receive christ we receive his holy spirit who is at work in and through us. So let's not ever put a lid, a cap, on what God 
can do. Let's not impose some sort of an artificial lead on what an almighty, sovereign, loving God can do in our lives or in our church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our world, and we thank you that you give us the opportunity to join you in what you're doing. Father, we pray that you would help us to serve, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you supply, that, Lord, we would exchange our weakness for your strength and serve in that. Father, that we would never um, never put some sort of a, of a the, the limit of our own minds on what you can do. Lord, as Ephesians 3 tells us, you are able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. Lord, make us conscious of the, the brevity of our earthly lives that we would make the greatest impact for the gospel with the life that you have given us. And Father, I pray for anyone in my hearing today who has not come to the place in their life where they have given their lives to Christ and come to the place where they trusted in the finished work of Jesus and received him as Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would open their heart to do that right now. Right now. So we just continue to pray. If that's the prayer of your heart, Jesus tells us that when we receive him, we're to go public with that. In fact, that we're to be baptized as a believer, as a couple of people were earlier in our service. And if you're trusting in Christ, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. I want to invite you to come. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just share with me what God is doing in your life. We want to celebrate that. We want to come alongside you and help you to grow as a disciple of Christ. We'll set up that time for you to be baptized as a believer in Christ. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family, uh, we want to invite you to come today. Or if you need prayer for any reason, you're invited to come. So, Father, speak to us now. Work in hearts and lives right now during this time of invitation for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. 
I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.